Coaching Inside the Box. A youth soccer coaching podcast. A Brit, a Brazilian, and an American discuss culture and environment and the impact it has on youth development. Can you coach inside the box? Welcome back to Coaching Inside the Box, episode nine, or perhaps since it's been so long, is it season two, episode one? I don't know, but welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. Andy, how's it going? Uh, couldn't be better. <laughs> if any better, I'd have to be twins. <laughs> <laughs> and Philippe, are you also a twin or you're a triplet? No, I'm a single child. A single child. Just kidding. It's actually my sister's birthday today, so... Oh, well, uh, how do you say it? Felicidades? That's Spanish. How do you say it in Portuguese? Felicidades. Felicidades. Very good. Well, welcome back, guys. This episode has been a very, very long time coming. So much so that when I came into the studio and started prepping this morning, I found a mask that I think I had worn the last time we recorded um, way back in November, which I thought was kind of um, interesting nonetheless. Um, so it's been... It's been a long time, uh, but currently we're in the midst of a Euro. Have you guys been watching any footy lately? Yeah, um, Euro and don't forget the Copa America too. Yeah, but the Copa America doesn't start until the knockout round start. Agreed. We're it's two and a half weeks into the tournament. Yeah, we're two and a half weeks into the tournament, and only two teams have been knocked out. It's exactly. awful. Well, I've, I don't I've mostly been watching England, so no, I haven't been watching any footy. <laughs> 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 we're recording this the morning of England-Germany, um, and uh, we scheduled it specifically so that Andy could watch the England match, um, or the Germany match, uh, perhaps. Um, yeah, but, uh, you know, the games yesterday were off the charts good. For those of you guys that are listening and not watching this on YouTube, I'm wearing my Switzerland jersey. Much to uh, Philippe's surprise, I'm actually Swiss. Um, and Philippe's very frustrated to find this out, apparently. No, he's not. He, his great-grandmother knows somebody from Switzerland, and he now claims he's Swiss <laughs> because they be friends. I don't know what percentage Swiss I am, but my grandmother is entirely Swiss. So I think that makes me fairly Swiss as, as, as far as Americans go. Well, you know, you were always easy to beat defensively, you know, so you would resemble in terms of cheese a Swiss cheese because <laughs> your defense had a lot of holes in it. So I can see the, you know, the comparison there, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I mean, <laughs> I'm certainly not neutral when it comes to disagreements within the office. I'm rather inflammatory, so perhaps I'm only Swiss a bit. <laughs> um, all right, so, so let's get into it. So um, uh, for those of you guys that don't know Andy specifically and only know him through this podcast, Andy is very much an agitator. Um, he might use the term controversy. I prefer controversy, but Andy doesn't mind thinking a little outside the box, always pushing the edge of the envelope. And really, that's where where much of our philosophy and coaching philosophy and outlook on life has come from, recognizing that you learn um, outside of your comfort zone and you grow outside of your comfort zone. Um, and specifically today, um, uh, as we re restart coaching inside the box, I can't think of a more polarizing topic. Um, let me preface it, though, and, and, and go back to how Andy trained me. Um, for those of you guys that are new to the pod, Andy was my coach from 6 to 17. Um, and so everything good and bad that is from my game is entirely uh, his fault. Um, and Andy trained me very specifically to use both feet. Um, every practice session, uh, we were very much centered around getting as many 
um, repetitions in as possible. So if we were shooting and playing wall ball, where me and a partner were, were, were playing a ball off the wall, shooting a ball off of the wall to each other in a rally format similar to, to tennis, um, it was one shot right, one shot left, one shot right, one shot left. When we practiced skills um, in, 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 in training, um, Andy taught us 12 skills, which is way too many. We've talked about that before specifically in the maestro episode, but he taught us one foot, one scissors to the right foot, one scissors to the left foot, one Maradona to the right foot, one Maradona to the left foot. And so as a result, we were very, 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 um, specific about being good with both feet. And Andy was very adamant about that. And that was all the way through my youth career. I don't ever remember that changing. I went away for college for four years, then taught high school for a couple of years, and then came back and started coaching alongside Andy. And it was then that he had told me that it had all changed. And what I remembered very vividly that we had to use both feet, he said, no, 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 that was all wrong. It's entirely one-footed now. We're only training kids to use one foot. And it took me a really long time to come around for the most part um, from this perspective. Andy, if, if you don't mind, what got you thinking, hey, we should look at this differently than you'd been? Because you were very structured in both feet um, uh, training. It was actually you. You, you changed I know where this is going. <laughs> because after all those years of working on both feet, you were still crap with both feet. <laughs> <laughs> which if you follow us on socials you'll see video of me way back in high school skying um uh, uh breakaway opportunities in state championship games and missing uh, both with my strong foot well, and my weak foot and, and one of the big things that changed my mind was the the margin of greatness concept and that is you have to work uh, on your you know your specialty in order to get the margin of greatness you know and uh you know, we, we worked on both feet, you know, which gave us the, the, the margin of better than average in most cases. Um, but in your case, it just didn't work at all. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I, you know, there's some players that, you know, that just don't have the margin of greatness. They have kind of the margin of mediocrity. And that was you. And <laughs> Ex except when it came to working hard. Nobody outworked me. <laughs> I, I, obviously, I'm just kidding, but. But the, the margin of greatness concept is really interesting because, um, you know, if you split your time between two disciplines, you are going to be uh, less than brilliant at both. You know, but if you really, really focus on one thing, you know, you have the chance to be great at one thing, especially if that one thing is in line with your natural aptitudes in life. You know, and this is just everybody knows this. You know, you, you cannot be a, you know, a world-class lawyer and a world-class accountant, you know, because there's not enough time in life to really dig down into the nitty-gritty of, of both professions and become world-class at both. So you might become very good at both, you know, or good at both probably, not even very good at both, you know, but you're just not going to be a superstar in one thing if you take half of your life to do another thing. Most people are really, really focused. Most people who achieve greatness in anything are incredibly tunnel vision about achieving greatness. You know? And so if you split your time 50-50 between two feet, for example, you are literally robbing your genius foot of the opportunity to be a genius. You mean the foot that science predicts is going to be the stronger and as opposed to the weaker well except in a very tiny proportion of the population one foot is stronger than the other just like one hand is stronger than the other that's just the way human beings are wired 
I think it's 79% of uh, researching for this pod, 79% of people are right-footed and 21% are left-footed. Right, so one foot has the potential to be genius, to be a maestro. The other foot, lump of clay. You know, that's just the way we're wired. Now, occasionally, you have a kid that's wired equally. You know, and, and I mean, it's really rare because, you know, there's always going to be, you know, 51% versus 49%. But occasionally, a kid is wired equally, in which case I would say to that kid, forget your right foot. Use your left, yeah. Use your left because why? Because it's rare. It's rare. And so defenders are not prepped to deal with the left footer. They're prepped by the prevalence of right-footedness to defend right-footed players. You know, and Pep Guardiola spotted this because uh, a couple of years ago I went through his, his, uh, his match day squad and he had literally the field players, he had a 50-50 split between left and right-footed players. Even though the world statistics are, as you just said, you know, about an eighth of people that you know, are left-footed, you know, he had half his, his game day playing players were, were left-footed. And so his players were, were um, uncomfortable to defend against for the majority of opponents because throughout their whole career, they defended against right-footed players more than left-footed players. And so they had much less experience in stopping, you know, uh, David Silva and, and uh, you know, the, the, you know, the Mares and, and players like that, uh, Zinchenko. They, you know, they, they were a surprise to the defenders much more than right-footed players, you know, which, you know, everybody had a comfort zone with. Yeah. And um, the, uh, this is a polarizing topic. For those of you guys that are listening, I would imagine almost everyone is of the opinion that kids, uh, kids players need to be, need to be, need to be proficient with both feet. Um, and, and I wanted to share this anecdote because I had a Twitter exchange just a few days ago. So it was, I think Saturday or Sunday, we decided that we'd, we'd, we'd uh, record a pod and I was, popping onto Twitter and I was reading some of uh, uh, the tweets that are in my feed. And there was a, a fella who's a, who's a giant Chiefs fan, which I love, but he lives in Michigan. I've been following him for a while. He's thought-provoking always. Um, and he shared a clip of Eden Hazard at the weekend um, receiving the ball in a tight, crowded space during the, the most recent Euro game um, and losing the ball. He tried to receive it onto his right foot and cut back, and he lost the ball. And this, this uh, um, guy questioned whether if he had – let the ball if he'd received the ball on his left foot and played it through would he have retained possession um and i responded questioning if we as coaches or as a coaching community uh prioritized two-footed players would we ever develop an eden hazard um and and his response was absolutely fantastic it was wait so developing only one-footed players is the way to go. If that's the message, I'll pass. And this is a really like educated, thoughtful, curious perspective. I mean, I've 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 followed him for a while. Like he's always kind of thought-provoking, and and this is such a polarizing topic for coaches that even a, a quite curious person is 100% at the jump zero interest in listening to the rationale and and so i intend to tweet this episode to him maybe he'll listen to it uh, i don't know at the very least i hope that we'll get all of you that are listening to kind of think about this in a deeper way um to fuller illustrate that point though philippe you growing up in brazil were did your parents did your dad did your coaches encourage you to train both feet well that's what everybody says always like i vividly remember my my uncle and my my dad and you know all the older people saying, "Hey, just go in front of a wall, okay? 
tap the ball back and forth with both feet so you're good with both feet and you know how kids listen very little to their their parents and their you know older relatives i didn't really do it i just mostly used my right for everything i loved doing skills and i actually loved juggling which maybe was a mistake but i spent too much time on that um and like it was way more natural to do everything with my right unfortunately i wasn't left footed so i just kept using my right kept using my right kept using my right and you know later on in life my left foot it wasn't actually that bad but you know i was mostly mostly right footed and you know but it was the way they all taught me but the conventional wisdom in, yeah. in brazil growing up was use both feet use both feet for me the same in the united states andy in england growing up was it both feet or i mean you're left footed were they did they tell you just to use your left oh uh, they they insisted that i use my right foot you know and you know and this this is you know this is kind of a a, a classic example um you know i grew up in in an environment where at the back of the house there was a rebound surface underneath the lounge window and the lounge window contained a lot of small glass window panes you know and if i broke one i had to replace it you know and you know despite all of the encouragement from my coaches to use both feet you know, I realized very quickly that if I used my weak foot, you know, the odds of me breaking a window rose to an incredible degree. <laughs> you know, so, so I, you know, I, I literally had instant punishment because it was my job if I broke one of those window panes to dig out all the old, you know, glass and putty and, and brads and, you know, and then put a new window pane in and, and re-brad it and re-putty it, you know. And so, you know, that was on the front end, you know, at least a, an hour to two hours of, of work for me. I got better at it, you know, but it was still a, a pain in the backside to have to replace that window. So forget the right foot. I wasn't going to get punished immediately every time. And even then I broke a significant portion of windows, you know, because, you know, my, even my strong foot wasn't, you know, good enough to control the ball every single time. But, you know, I might get a week or two before I broke a pain using my strong foot. But, you know, I wouldn't even get a minute or two before I broke a pain using my weak foot. <laughs> Andy, you tell a good story uh, related to your book, the first book, Training Soccer Legends, um, and the chapter specifically that discusses the importance of only training one foot. So this must have been written while I was off to college. Um, and you had shared a, the, the, the draft of this book with some good friends. Uh, one of which was Brian Topkins, the coach, the head coach for the men's team at Yale. Right. And do you remember what he told you when, when you had your, your call after he'd read your book and your feedback related to your book? Well, you know, Brian uh, saw the logic. And, you know, and bear in mind, this guy's the, you know, the head coach of the men's soccer team. And, and he took two of our players that ended up being team captains at, at Yale because they were so creative and, you know, and, and so deceptive on the ball. And, uh, you know, Brian was, you know, willing to do things out of the box and, and push the edge of the envelope. And, uh, you know, we discussed forever and a day, the, you know, this philosophy. And in the end, he said, okay, I'm going to do this with my team. <laughs> and, you know, poor Brian, you know, it's, it, it was too late. Yeah. You know, the team was too dyed in the wall, but, you know, and, and what he was asking his players to do was, you know, for them to literally be a leopard that changes their spots. You know, leopard into a lion, you know, and lose your, you know, lose your leopard coat. And the leopard isn't going to lose its leopard coat. It's just going to become very confused, you know, when, when it comes to, you know, trying to find a, 
you know, a wife because he's trying to find a lion wife instead of a leopard wife. Mm -hmm. You know, and and you know that's a you know kind of a strange example, but you cannot change a person's spots. You know, as time goes by, things become ingrained. You know, and by the time the kids were 18, 19, 20, 21, like Brian's students and players, you know, it was dyed in the wool. You've got to get kids early. And, you know, when you get a kid early, you can make a massive difference. And bear in mind that what we're doing by encouraging the strong foot is not trying to change them. We are doing what comes naturally to them, which is to use their genius foot, you know, and or potentially genius foot. Of course, you know, when a kid is five years of age, it's not a genius foot. But you're given one foot that has the potential to be genius. Hopefully it's left foot because that's the one defenders aren't used to defending. But in most cases, it's going to be a right foot. But, you know, you're not going to make your left foot, if you're right-footed, a genius foot. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense. And I, I oftentimes when I'm talking to coaches, new coaches, about our philosophy, I talk about science. And don't, don't work against science, but lean into the science. And so, for example, um, kids are very egocentric. It takes a long time before they become um, uh, uh, interdependent and able to work in teams. And so, but so often, coaches use that five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old age groups to work on team passing concepts, which is actually anti-science, because in those age groups, they're very egocentric. And so if we lean into and work on deceptive dribbling that encourages that egocentric nature, we can make more ground up in terms of getting them to do more and achieve more at a younger age group because we're working with the science. It's the same with the one-footedness. But I remember you telling me the story about Brian Tompkins and saying, Andy, I've read the book. There's this one chapter. It just makes my skin crawl. And he was referring specifically to this one, and it took him a bit, I think, to, to get there. Um, it's... This is like life, you know, and, and so the greatest example of what makes people's skin crawl in life, you know, is religion. You know, it, if, if I, I was brought up in the Anglican religion in, in, in Great Britain, you know, and we all know the roots of the Anglican religion. Henry VIII, you know, wanted to, you know, he was a philanderer. He wanted to marry different women, you know, and, and so... The Roman Catholic religion didn't allow for divorce, you know, and, you know, and Henry was, you know, hot to trot, you know, and, you know, didn't like his past wife. And, you know, and, and so he decided that, you know, he, he couldn't get divorced. So he decided to, you know, basically kill him or imprison them or whatever it was. And in the end, he decided to change the whole British religious <laughs> base. You got to love his commitment. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's uh, not to get into politics, but you know, we we see similar things happening around the world today. Sure. And and uh, you know that you know the, the, this person was the you know the the oracle. You know, he could do whatever he wanted. You know, and so now we have across the world a predominance of the Anglican religion in certain countries because one man you know, didn't like his current wife and wanted to <laughs> divorce his current <laughs> wife, you know. And, and, and so, you know, we, we're dealing with, um, you know, a, a similar, you know, horrible, you know, this is just wrong reaction. Like the guy you just mentioned, you know, he said, I'm out. You yep. know, he's not even prepared to open his mind because he is a Roman Catholic or he is a Muslim you know, or he's an Anglican. And it's the way we were brought up. It's the way we grew up. It's difficult to change that. And this one footedness or two footedness is that ingrained in us as coaches and players. Yeah. And, and I come from Oxford, England, 
you know, and, and I was brought up, brought up in a boarding house. And, and so I had all of these religious perspectives hitting me, you know, people from all over the world. I didn't grow up, you know, with one denomination predominant in my mind, you know, being basically brainwashed by the local vicar. You know, that, that wasn't the way I grew up. And so I had the ability to see options and think outside of the box and, and question the status quo, you know. And, and, and so I didn't get the, you know, the, oh, that, that feels wrong. I'm not just not going to entertain it reaction very much, you know, because I had to look at the world differently because I was eating breakfast and dinner with people of different races, religions, colors, creed, sexual orientation, political viewpoint, you know, and, and so we have to be able to open our mind to a new way of looking at things. But I did get that feeling. When you first brought that up, it was just like, that's crazy. Like, I understood it from a logic perspective. My right foot is naturally better than my left. But what do I do when, in a game when the ball comes to my left foot? Like, like I've got to use my left foot. And, 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 the, and I was told repeatedly, probably by you and others, that if I want to play at the highest level, I've got to be two-footed. If I want to play at the highest level, I've got to be two-footed. If I want to play at the highest level, I have to be two-footed. And it was when you pointed me specifically to a study that was done in 1998 by touches taken during the France World Cup that my mind opened up to this. And so, so for the, the Jason, uh, the guy on Twitter, if you're listening to this, it's this, it's this study that changed my perspective and allowed me to open my mind to the concept that perhaps one-footedness is better than two-footedness. And essentially what they did is, is some, some data researchers, researchers out of England, I think, somewhere in England, and there's a paper written online. I'll, I'll link to it um, as we put the show out. Um, but there's a paper written online. These, these researchers went through and, and logged every touch taken by most of the players during the World Cup in 1998, right foot or left foot, right, or weak foot or strong foot, weak foot or strong foot, weak foot or strong foot. And what they found was about 80% of the touches taken during the World Cup were taken, and these are the best players in the world, right, were taken by their strong or their dominant foot. So 20% were taken with their weak foot. But then when they categorized these touches based on level of difficulty, right? So long passes, shots, dribbles, right? Touches under pressure in tight spaces. It was, and this is where it really changed my perspective, 97% of the touches taken by these World Cup players were taken with their dominant foot. And so going back to my youth, trained by Andy, why would we spend 50% of the repetitions? We only get so many repetitions in our life, right? Why would we spend 50% of, uh, of our repetitions if we're only going to, at the highest level for the people, for the players that are the most two-footed, right? Those, those World Cup stars are only using it 3% of the time. Like just simple math, data would tell me, oh, it doesn't make sense. Like it just flat out doesn't make sense. And that's when I opened my mind up to it. Did you, did you come across that study? Was that part of that evolution for you, Andy? Yeah, you know, it, it's, you know, I was brought up in, in 1960s England. And, you know, the, the one classic example that was shoved down our throat of a two-footed player, and, and maybe he was the greatest two-footed player that ever lived, you know, was Bobby Charlton, you know, and Bobby Charlton had the ability to hit a ball, you know, from 25, 30 meters out and score goals with both feet, you know, and, um, but, you know, aside from British people, you know, the, the rest of the world doesn't see Bobby Charlton as one of the, you know, the world's best ever players. It's very much a British thing, you know, because, you know, we were exposed to him on a weekly basis, 
you know, those of us that, you know, the, uh, the old Ray Badgers like me, you know, grew up watching Bobby Charlton in the 60s and watched him win the World Cup with England and watched him win the, you know, the, what was the European Cup, you know, uh, and now the Champions League with, with Manchester United. Um, and, you know, he had that, that wonderful ability be, to be able to go both ways, you know, and, and but we, we, we kind of miss the obvious because, you know, if, if you look at the players that preceded Bobby Charlton and the players, the great ones that came after Bobby Charlton, um, you know, they, they were mostly, you know, very one-footed players, you know, and, you know, the, the greatest example being Diego Maradona because... You know, I'm going to hand it over to, to you know, like Diego Maradona, Ronaldinho. You know, it <laughs> I mean, you're, they, you're South it's, American. It's, it's incredible. Like, Maradona would turn his whole body to hit with his left. He would literally do a Rabona to not hit with his right. I mean, it's just, if you watch him play, I mean, and I'm sure most people here have, you you can see that very clearly. And that's what also... Obviously, I had the same cringe response when I started hearing that topic. But as soon as I started hearing it, I heard the examples of Maradona, nowadays Leo Messi, and these guys. I mean, the Brazilians, uh, Rivaldo was a left-footed player, never used his right foot for anything. Like, in fact, all his World Cup goals, I watched a, a video of all his World Cup goals, zero with his right foot. You know, uh, Garincha. Garincha literally didn't use his left foot for anything, anything. You know, it's just, you can see, and uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And if we look at stats from these players, it's unbelievable. Like, it's less than 20% of their goals or, you know, certainly touches. It's, it's, it's with their weak foot. Most of their goals and, you know, important touches, it's like, it's massively... Um, strong-footed, dominant, you know? So, I mean, I think it's a, a concept that needs to be uh, thought again for for most coaches because, you know, if you want to create this special player, it's the player that will be great with one foot, not with, you know, average with both. Can, can I, can I uh, jump in here? Because um, the, the one thing about a soccer career is it's incredibly short, you know, and... and you know, it, it, we're, we're not golfers. You know, we can't do what, what Phil Mickelson just did, you know, and win a major tournament, you know, when we're, you know, 40-something years old. You know, that doesn't happen. You know, and, and, wonderfully, uh, sports science is keeping the great players fitter for longer. You know, it used to be as I was growing up, you know, you were kind of lucky if you made 30 before you retired. You know, and these days we're seeing, you know, Ibrahimovic, we're seeing, you know, CR7, we're seeing these great players going on into their late 30s, you know. And so, uh, you know, the, the medical profession, you know, our knowledge of sports science has allowed us to extend the career of these great players, which is why they're breaking records, is they're lasting longer, you know, than, than anybody in previous generations did, you know. But, but what we've got to realize is, you know, here's a kid, right? You know, it, like Andrew, I started coaching Andrew when he was six. And, and uh, you know, by the time he's 12, he's trying to make ODP teams. You know, so age six to 12, that's only six years. Time is running out before he tries out for an ODP team. When he tries out for an ODP team, he's got to stand out. You know, and, you know, and, and then after ODP, there's high school. And time's running out before he makes a high school team. 
you know, and so maybe he's playing for the state, but he's still got to impress the high school coach, you know, and so we've got to get to that point where we stand out, we get in front of, you know, the people that count, we have got to look good, we've got to be game winners, we've got to be special players, we've got to be Diego Maradona at that point in time. And then, of course, right after high school, there's college and then there's pro, you know, and so the tests come, you know, when you're 12, you know, when you're 16, you know, 14, 15, 16 in high school, you know, when you're 18, 19, looking to get that college scholarship, you know, and at that point in time, we've got to be that player that stands out. And, and here's the interesting thing. There's a huge um, sea changed recognition pattern happened with players based on the month in the year in which they were born in, right? So we all realize now because of multiple studies that if you're born at the most mature end of the year, so, so let's say your ODP year is from January until December, if you're born January the 1st, you have a massive maturity advantage, you know, over the kid that's born December 30th. You know, it's, it's a huge advantage and that is now accepted within the you know the coaching community you know that that's the case you know well if you have a massive skill advantage you know that is accepted in the community that you are going to be in the shop window the front of the line when odp places are being handed out well if you dil you know dilute your skill by 50% because you're working on your wooden leg opposed to your potential genius foot, you've got to be hurting your chances to get into that ODP team the first time you try out. Jack of all trades, master of none. You exactly. used to say that all the time. And, 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 and that's the thing. Why would you work 50% of your time for 3% that you never use it or yeah. very rarely use compared to the strong foot? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. You I, see Maradona as the example. The most famous goal he scored in that World Cup against... England here. Um, he took Did 11. You have to go there, really. I always have to go there. You always have to go there. This is the last time I do this podcast. I'm <laughs> chucking my teddy. Uh, but in that goal, Maradona took 11 touches on the ball, including the finish. All 11 with his left foot. And it was actually a play that he went to his right side multiple times. But every time he did it, he would adjust his body and still touch the ball with his left. Speaking of that goal in Maradona, for those of you guys that don't follow us on social media, you can find a clip of me doing almost the exact same thing with my right foot from 2000 during my junior year at O'Hare High School in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, so give, it, give <laughs> okay, us a Mr. follow Braggart. on social so you can see it just the same. And, and, and Andrew just lost all credibility. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, to be fair, the O'Hara football stadium had resembled Estadio Azteca uh, quite a bit, actually. So, so it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I got I to point out the, the, the similarity between, um, you know, it, it, so in 1987, you know, and, and I'll cover this briefly because some people have heard this before. Um, you know, we're picking the national team with Anson Dorrance. Don't this this is a good one. Go into this one deeply because for those of you that haven't heard the story before, this conversation that Andy had with Anson is at the genesis of everything we do from a coaching perspective. It's it, why we look for efficiencies. It's why we look for the margin of greatness. It's why we've created a competitive cauldron in all in all of our training sessions. It, it flipped my whole script. Yeah, you know, my my life up until that point had been wasted. You know, and and so. Here we are at the end of the national camp. We're picking the under-19 national girls team. 
you know, and, uh, and, you know, we're looking at all these players and, you know, we've all got in our mind certain players that we must have on the team that we've seen during the week. And there's six of us, now, really only five because Hanson was sat to the side watching, you know, and with a wry smile on his face, by the way, you know, he, he knew the, exactly what, you know, uh, I think the mistakes we were about to make. And, uh, you know, and Anson, for those of you that don't know him, you know, he, he grew up traveling around the world and his father was in oil and, you know, he, he had this ability to think outside the box because he'd been part of so many cultures, you know, during his formative years. And, and so, so, you know, we're picking players and we pick 10 players like this so easily. And, uh, and then we bog down and we can't pick the next player because everybody has a certain talent in mind, but we're not in agreement about that talent that, that, you know, that the other girls had. And, and Anson stopped us after we'd gone round and round in circles a whole bunch of times, and he said, guys, he said, do you mind me showing you what you've already done? And I thought that was kind of weird, showing us what we've already done, because I hadn't done anything, I just picked 10 players. And he said, look at the players you've picked, and there's a fantastic English saying, you know, word, gobsmacked, which is, you know, and you know, you realise that you know you're you're totally surprised. You've made a stupid error, you know, and you know, you, all of a sudden it was like the ice bucket challenge. Somebody dumped this huge bucket of freezing cold water over me, and and what ran through my mind at the time was I've wasted, and it was 13 years to this point. I've wasted 13 years of coaching the wrong things because I was coaching to win. I was coaching uh, the functional player. You know, the right fullback that delivered the ball 50 yards down the line to, to the fast forward. You know, and so I was limiting my players' horizons. And yet, I had just picked 10 players that could do one thing or another thing or both. And what were those things? Deceptive, deceptive dribbling. dribbling. Goal scoring. Correct. Right. They were either deceptive dribblers or goal scorers or both. You know, and everybody had done the same. No disagreement. We'd penciled in Brandy Chastain. You know, it was probably the first name. I can't remember the order, but Brandy Chastain was a warrior. She was a center striker, you know, and Brandy was the, for those of you that don't remember, she's the one that scored the winning goal in 1999 in the Rose Bowl, you know, for the USA women's team in the World Cup against China, you know, in the last PK. And then she tore off her shirt and she's on her knees like this with just her sports bra. And she wrote a book later, It's Not About the Bra. That's Brandy. You know, and so we'd pick Brandy and the other players like her, you know, and, and Anson said, look, you've picked your creative midfield and your forwards. He said, now we need to pick who? The and it was players. easy. We needed to pick somebody that could stop Brandy. And, you know, Linda might eventually listen to this podcast, but... You know, we had this beast of a defender called Linda Hamilton that was intimidating, you know, and she scared me and I was off the field on the sideline safe, you know, and, you know, she was so tough and she was fast and strong and she was good with the ball as well. But, you know, she was an intimidator. And if, if she marked you, you know, you was going to be scared. One look at Linda and you're going, oh, no. I'm going to get kicked, you know, up and down the field, and I'm going to be black and blue at the end of the game. You know, people knew that that Linda was the enforcer, and and, and everybody looked around and said, uh, "Linda, <laughs> <laughs> okay." And straight away we had our next player, you know, because we had a clear goal now to stop the great players we'd already picked. But do I want to be honestly? I was Linda as a player, 
You know, I wasn't that gifted dribbler. You know, people think because I teach this style that I was a great dribbler and goal scorer. I wasn't. I was a donkey defender. You know, I, you know, I, I played against an England right winger and I kicked him black and blue. You know, but there's no way on God's green earth I could have done what he did. You know, you know, during my career. You know, and so you know, and I worship those players, the Georgie Bests. You know, the players in Britain that I grew up with, the Eddie Grays. You know, the dribblers, goal scorers. Those were my heroes. But, you know, I, I had no understanding of how to be that player. So it was that moment that, that for you cemented that in 1988 or 89, when you started the Legends Club, your focus was going to be centered around developing deceptive dribblers and goal scorers. Well, I went to Anson and we had discussions and he said, listen, if you want to you know, have a big impact, start a club and train dribblers and goal scorers. Because, you know, if you're not the guy in charge, you know, you're going to have to win games. So you need to train people to lose in the first place, lose the ball, trying bigger and better things, you know, trying to be brilliant with the ball at their feet. And you've got to accept those defeats in order to come out on the other side with a club that can win, but win beautifully like the Brazilians. You know, and, you know, and I've always loved the Brazilian game. My father loved the Brazilian game. I mean, who doesn't love, you know, you know the, the team of, the, you know, of 1970, you know, Jazinho and, and, you know, obviously, you know, Pelé and, and fullbacks that, you know, that can come, you know, all the way out of the back and score, you know, incredible goals, you know, World Cup final winning goals, you know, uh, you know, you know and, and so, you know, we love those teams and yet we, we can't train those players. Why? One of the reasons why is because we focus on two feet. You know, and these kids from Brazil that, that made up the incredible team of 1970 or the incredible team of 1982, you know, or the incredible team of 2002, these are kids that grew up without coaches telling them, don't use your strong foot. They grew up in the favelas playing small-sided games. Tell people about it, Philippe. It, yeah, it's, it, it, you know, it's all organic. Like, they, when you're not told what to do, you, you just do what you want to do. And again... You know, even being, you know, a common um, say in Brazil and across the world, oh, you got to train both feet. The kid would go out and play without anybody telling them what to do at that moment. They'll do what they want to do, and that's the expression of, you know, their their love for the game. So in that that's the way it is. So in Brazil, the kids, you know, they, they're not coached. They're not forced to do what they're not naturally supposed to do so they're naturally right-footed on that moment in the favela playing on the streets without nobody telling them what to do they're going to use their right foot or left foot versus vice versa whichever is their strong one so again what we talk about now in brazil is these players are going too early to europe you know and they're being become european players you can see the the fullbacks from brazil right now they're mostly defenders. They're not the Dani Alves, the Marcelos, the, the Roberto Carlos, you know, all those skillful players or, like he said, from the old, uh, older days, like Carlos Alberto Torres, like they are defenders. So they're becoming too European. That's why Brazil, honestly, the last, you know, 10, 15 years are, is not as great. It's not as fun to watch. Besides one player who I still have a blast watching, which is Neymar, and guess what? He was the only one who stayed in Brazil until he was about 21, 22 years old. So, it, but from a practical perspective, right? From a youth coaching perspective, is 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 we don't, as coaches with our players, we don't 
tick off boxes. You know, it's not a perspective of like, okay, my kids aren't receiving the ball well on the half turn with their weak foot to open up new space. And so I've got to now organize some drills or go find some drills on YouTube that will work on that. Instead, we're putting kids in, uh, in, in, a, in a structured environment that has very little structure related to 1v1, 2v2, tight space 4v4, and giving kids, letting the game teach them uh, how to solve problems. And so they're, they're receiving the ball in the half turn, maybe only with their strong foot, but the creativity that comes from that, they're not limited to very sp- specific or functions within a position or a role. And, and, and I, 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 I mean, through these episodes that we do with the podcast, that's always what we're talking about is, is, is lose the structure, lose the structure, lose the structure, um, and, and give kids more freedom, um, to express themselves, to experiment, to fail, um, and to grow. And what you'll find is that they use their strong foot from a practical perspective, growing up in the legends club coached by Andy, we would work on a skill going to our strong foot and then work on the skill, same skill going to our weak foot. We learned 12 skills. And so, but each, each skill, in each skill to our strong foot and to our weak foot is a different neurological skill or neuro- neurological pathway. And so we actually learned 24 different skills in reality as a player that, you know, my pinnacle was a couple practices with the wizards where I found out quickly I wasn't good enough. Um, uh, uh, I had five or six skills that were very useful for me and that allowed me to be creative and to create in tight spaces and go for it. Um, and so we've progressed and now only teach six skills. Um, um, Andy still structures it from a perspective of every skill comes out on their strong foot. Um, I actually have a not structured approach where I allow kids to do every skill going only one way. Most skills go to their strong foot. A few skills come to their weak foot. Um, and that's a difference in opinion between Andy and I. Um, Andy, talk about the practicality of Maestro and how you focus in on that from a training perspective. Well, you know, to, to address, you know, your, your observation that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you still teach a, a little bit wider curriculum than I do. Um, over the years, it became obvious that, uh, that um, my approach of teaching a whole bunch of fast footwork and, and, you know, literally hundreds of different ways to move with the ball uh, was resulting in players that, you know, and... Uh, somewhere a long time ago, somebody said to me that, that you know, there's a lot of things in life that are like looking for, uh, uh, you know, a, a lump in a bowl of porridge, you know, and, and, you know, and so, you know, you've got this bowl of porridge and, you know, you're searching for this, you know, this lump in this, you know, in this bowl of porridge, you know, and, you know, and, and you know, it, there's, there's a mass of nothingness, you know, like, like white, you know, stodgy material. And you're trying to find something in that stodgy material. And, and I realized that that's kind of what I'd been doing in covering, uh, you know, hundreds of fast footwork exercises. You know, it's, I turned all of these, you know, these ways of working with a ball into basically a whole bowl of porridge, you know, and, you know, trying to find something special out of all of that training was a very, very rare occurrence. You know, because I'd actually train them just to do little tappy toes, you know, tappy, tappy touches between their toes. You know, instead of training them in, as the Maestro series done the, does these days, training them in, in a massive initial deception, you know, like a, a, a magician does. You know, David Copperfield, 
they make you look over here and the whole audience goes over here because of, of some deception, well, the trick happens over here, if that makes sense. You know, they, they literally make you look somewhere else. And so, you know, I, I realized that over, gradually over the years, I had been trying to teach my kids too much and I was tearing my hair out in frustration when they were in the perfect situation for a double scissors and they didn't try it. Well, that was my fault because I hadn't made it a priority, you know, and, and so I started narrowing in on, you know, we've got to learn a limited number of moves, but learn them to a level of genius where we can do this trick in front of an audience of 5,000, make the whole audience look over here, including all the fans in the stands, and think we're gonna do this before we do something completely different that completely foxes and, and, and destroys the whole of the other team. And that's in the Maestro series, you know, we've, we've drilled down into, you know, we stare, we point, we shout, and then we do a fake to drill the ball 40 yards in this direction before we do the Maradona turn. Things that even the great Diego didn't do that add to the deception of the move. But it, it's such a difficult move if we don't focus on that move and the other five moves that you need, plus the shot fake or the pass fake, you know, you're not going to learn all five, uh, all six moves with a, a pre-fake because they're so difficult. You know, this is like Simone Biles, you know, doing, you know, what she just did, which is invent a whole new move, you know, inv involving a triple laid out somersault. You know, it, it's just incredible what she's done. And so she's at a whole degree of difficulty above other gymnasts that we can be in soccer if we teach this way, you know, but nobody teaches this way apart from right now, you know, people in our club in Kansas City, you know, and so what we're doing is we're pioneering, we're breaking the mold and we're taking, um, you know, things that people have done like a pass fake or a shot fake, you know, like Meza Ozil when he got two defenders to completely leave their feet and dive, you know, and then he basically walked the ball into an open net you know, it, that was done with a simple shot fake. You know, he lifted the ball over the goalie, two defenders, look it up, it's the best one of all his highlights on YouTube. You know, that's the stuff that we need to make de rigueur. That, you know, we need to make that part of everything we do, but you can't make those great things part of everything you do unless you really identify the best fakes you know, the world's most effective fakes over the years, which is what I've finally come down to is we cannot be everything to everybody. You know, there are six basic situations in the game. Going at a defender at speed is one of those, right? You know, and not to go through every single move, but when you go at a defender at speed, the best way to beat a defender is with a scissors. And we teach the double scissors because it teaches the single scissors within the double scissors. So we're actually teaching two moves, a single and a double, double scissors, by teaching the most difficult move, the single scissors. But it involves you know, a pre-fake when you do a double scissors that you can't do when you're doing a single scissors that actually sets the defender up to overcommit to the real fake and leave them totally vulnerable to getting absolutely beaten to death you know, when you finally go the way you're going to go. You know, and these things haven't been thought of you know, haven't been dealt with, haven't been taught,
but we only need six moves. One when we're running out of player, one when we're standing still facing a player, one when we have a player to our side, one when we have a player behind our shoulders, Cruyff turn, you know, and we teach the most difficult version of each of those moves. And those are the moves that are named after great players and they were made famous because those great players used the moves because they are the best moves in world history. And you only need one move for each situation in the game. And that's what we've done is we've narrowed it in so that we are developing the margin of greatness. And our players can do this no matter the level they play at, they can do this and get success at that level if they work hard enough to conquer the moves when they're youth players. Does that make sense? It makes perfect. I mean, that's an Anson concept, margin of greatness, right? Margin of greatness, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he taught me that, absolutely. And, and, and jack of all trades, master of none is something that I oftentimes think about um, when coaching is, is how do I ensure that my kids aren't just okay or able to do a bunch of different things, but truly masters at specific things. Um, and that's where the, the one-footedness comes into it. Um, and and uh, I think that's an important piece um, to remember from a coaching perspective. And so, um, Andy, you've got no cards there. Is there anything that we're missing that we should be covering? Yeah. Um, okay, let's, let's dive in. Well, it, you know, this is, this is actually a big one because this deals with all those right-footed players out there. You know, if you're a right-footed player, you need better moves than a left-footed player. Why? Because the defenders are, you know, one out of every five attacker is right-footed. So, or uh, four out of every five is right-footed, so they're expecting you to be right-footed. I was a left fullback. You know, my, my whole career, my major position uh, uh, was, was left fullback. And I was totally comfortable playing against right-wingers, you know, you know, who were right-footed. You know, the minute they put, you know, which is commonplace these days, it didn't used to be commonplace, the minute the other team put a left-footed player on my side of the field as a left fullback, I was a fish out of water. You know, I remember um, uh, in, a, in a crucial game playing against a left-footed right winger, and, you know, he beat me again and again and again, and we, we were tied going into the game. We needed to win the game to avoid relegation. And he hit me with a fake. He cut inside onto his, his left foot. And I grabbed his shirt about five yards outside the box. He dragged me into the box and fell down and got a penalty kick. And they won the game two to one and we went down. You know, and I was lost against left-footed right-wingers. Why? Because that was the, the player I didn't have the experience against. You know, we can all do things habitually that we have been exposed to over the years. Driving a car is the finest example. You know, we drive a car without thinking about it these days. Intuitive. Right? Yeah, it's intuitive. But remember, if we get on a NASCAR track and we're driving a NASCAR, <laughs> we're going to be a fish out of water. You know, we're going to get into a wreck. We're going to create a death sooner or later because, you know, we, we can't do it at that level. So you've, you've got to make it intuitive, but you've got to make it intuitive at the highest level. You know, and defenders don't defend against left-footed players enough to make successful defending against left-footed players intuitive does that make sense perfect sense so make, right that's why guardiola had half of his his roster was absolutely. left footed absolutely so you know and most people don't recognize this stuff but this is the stuff i think about you know and i recognize and i go through and i just drill down into this stuff you know and so he's recognized that you know when you're defending against mares or uh, or you know david silver you know you you're going to give that guy an opportunity to squeeze the ball past you into the corner of the net. 
you know, and, and, and to, the, to the casual observer, you know, it looks like that, that, that forward got lucky. But at that level, it's not luck. They're that good on their, on their strong foot that they can find, you know, the width of the ball to score a goal, you know, and the defender on their weak side doesn't have the ability to stop them. But if they were right-footed, does have the ability, you know, to read the little nuances and get that block foot, you know, in, into the path of the ball. You know, and these things make the difference over a season, you know, of thousands and thousands of shots and one-on-ones. These things make the difference, you know, one out of every two games, and it takes Manchester City to the top of the table, and they win the league by a country mile, you know, because these are the little things that are actually the big things. And, and, and um, technology and YouTube is a, is a fantastic tool for you, right? So, like, do, do what I did. Um, and when Andy kind of took me down this path and I started searching and watching players that I admired, Precky, right, um, or greats, um, Ronaldo, Messi, um, count, just get out a tablet and count and uh, tally mark where their touches are coming from, what strong foot, weak foot, what not. And what you'll find is you'll find that these players, not just their shots, but their touches are so predominantly dominant foot. Um, um, and, and, and you'll see a pattern. And that pattern, um, again, you know, stats matter. They do, right? Si- uh, sports science matters. It does. Um, it'll tell a story that, that, that it's a myth. We don't need two-footed players. We need, we need excellent. It, it, it's not a players. myth. It's not a myth. Now, you know, so I have to say that we need to have an ability to reaction finish. You know, and, and so, you know, which we, is when Messi smashes one in with his right foot, it's a reaction finish. Yeah, he might but be within eight yards of goal and, you know, he's got one chance to put the ball into the net. And so and, and that's why our box soccer environment that we've created in our facilities is so incredible is you have to one touch finish the ball with your weak foot. Otherwise, you don't get a chance on your strong foot. You know, and so th- that has to be a skill that, that the environment develops and our environment develops it like no other environment ever in world history. You know, so, so you have to be two-footed to that degree. And, and I want to, you know, you, you said, if, do I have something else? I always have something else. I know there's a bunch of note yeah, cards so, over there we haven't so covered. You, you have to compare soccer to tennis, to basketball, to golf. And, and in these other sports, you, you don't see people switch hidden in tennis at the highest level. You know, they are one arm dominant, you know. And remember, arms and hands are more dexterous than feet, you know, and, and they're, they're still one arm dominant, you know, even though their weaker arm is, is much more de- dexterous by comparison than a weaker foot, you know. And so you've you got to look at what Steph Curry does. He uses one hand primarily to score three-point shots. The other hand is a guide, sure, but it's got a minor role in the incredible skill of hitting three-point shots from downtown that makes Steph Curry, you know, the best in the world. You know, and, and this happens in, in golf. You never see golfers go, you know, to, you know, even have one club in their bag and swing left-handedly at stuff that, you know, even when the ball is up against a tree and they don't have a right-handed sh- you know, right shot, you know, they, they don't, you know, have a golf club in their bag that they switch up for the left-handed shot. You know, they, they, it's all one way with golfers. And, 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 and so... You look at the one-touch sports like tennis or racquetball or squash, you know, and yes, you've got to have a backhand, but that's always done with the strongest limb, you know, and so soccer players have found a way to use the strongest limb as much as possible. Look at tennis. 
Rafa still runs around the ball in tennis, you know, whenever he can, you know. But then if he's forced to, he'll use his backhand, you know. But he'll run around that ball. Two-thirds of anything coming anywhere close to the center of the court, you know, that's a longer shot from his opponent, he'll run around and use his forehand because his forehand is devastated. That's his atom bomb, you know, so he wants it more. You know, well, in soccer, we have the choice whether we're going to play it first time, second time, third time, fourth time, fifth time. We've got something that Rafa doesn't have, which is choice between one touch and tenth touch. Diego Maradona, 11 touches. You know, we have that choice. But what we don't teach our players is to keep the ball until the fifth touch, the seventh touch, the, the ninth touch. Or Diego Maradona, the greatest goal of all time, the eleventh touch. You know, and that's why we don't develop many Diego Maradonas. They have to do that against the advice of their coaches. You know, because if they take eleven touches, they're ball hogs. They're ball hogs. Oh, give me a break. You know, and here's the beauty about what we do with the Legends Club. I never watch a Legends team that isn't five times more entertaining the opposition. And I might watch a, you know, a team that is fairly new to the club and they're just getting their feet wet with dribbling and, sh you know, and, and you know, doing all that deceptive stuff, and they lose 6-0. to zero. I lost a game 22-0 one time, the first, team, you know, uh, you know, first game I had with that team, because I was telling them to do moves every time they got the ball, even in their own penalty area. So we gave up so many soft goals. You know, within a couple of years, you know, we're in the last four of State Cup against the same team that beat us 22-0. You know, and so, you know, and, and, and the other coach, an old friend of mine, held off, told his players not to score. That game would have been 40 to zero, you know. But my players improved so quickly, you know, that a couple of years later, they were beating players with those moves that they were losing the ball on. You know, does that make sense? We, we have to go through the pain to get the game, you know. And, you know, and we've got to teach these kids to be brilliant with one foot because they can't be brilliant with both. And w when you mentioned about, you know, people looking up stats, I actually brought stats uh, about Cristiano Ronaldo and Messi. Um, and it's funny because people talk about Messi and like, oh, Messi is super left-footed, dominant, you know, he barely uses his right foot. And it's right, only about 12% of his goals are with his right foot, which, I mean, 12% is, you know, nothing in and the spectrum easy ones. of the game. Yeah. And again, if you... Dig deep, and you see like the degree of difficulty and all that kind of stuff. As he said, they're mostly tap-ins or one-touch reaction finishes inside the box. But people will say, "Oh, Cristiano Ronaldo, he's fantastic with both feet." And then we look at his stats; only about 18% of his goals are with his left foot. In fact, 17% are with his head. So like he's almost he almost scores as many with his head as he scores with his weak foot. And everything else is with his right foot. You know, how many players do we see taking corner kicks, free kicks, penalty kicks with their weak foot? I mean, you have one average player somewhere that nobody knows that will take corner kicks with both feet. But, like, nobody for the important parts of the game, you know, the set pieces, that they'll use their weak foot. It, it's, it's just it, it's not common. They, they don't do it. You know, they're great with their strong foot. And even players that people often say, oh, they're fantastic with both feet. And you look at the stats, not really. Right, well, and this is the hare and turtle thing. You know, you can't train a turtle to sprint. 
You know, you got you got a weak leg. You know, everybody's got a weak leg. You know, you can't train that turtle to sprint. You know, that turtle has got to be kept where he needs to. You know, that turtle's got to be kept in the in the in the ocean. You know, it, you know, it, it's got to do what it does. You know, the hare, yeah. You know, you can train that guy to be a world champ. You know, but you can't train the turtle to be a world champ. And you know, and all my life, people have been telling me I need to train my turtle to sprint. You know, <laughs> it doesn't make sense. You know. You know, hopefully, you know, that, that's an, you know, a way of illustrating what we've been doing to kids. You know, our least genetically capable foot, we've been asking them to make it into a World Cup's foot. You know, and, but, you know, we can't. You know, we, all we can do is make our least capable foot a rec league foot. You know, and so why are we doing it? You know, why are we fighting the tide? The tide happens. You know, it's, you know, it's something that is a given. You know, you never win fighting the tide. You know, you know that's, that sandcastle is getting destroyed. You know, we've all been there on that beach. You know, and so why are we fighting the tide? Successful teams, successful organizations, regardless of the disciplines, the, the discipline, find efficiencies that nobody else sees, right? And so as coaches, if we can find efficiencies in terms of how to help players progress and grow fastest and where they'll find efficiencies in a game that gives them that margin of greatness, um, we've got an opportunity to really help our players go to a height that, that, that other teams and other coaches are, are incapable of. And, and, and one more thing, having written two books about coaching philosophy and leadership for life you know, that comes through a great coaching philosophy, I realized that you know, I made a mistake and I really should have been writing first uh, a different book, which I'm writing now, which is the influence that the culture and the environment has on players. You know, and if if the culture is brilliance, we're going to work on one foot. And and um, what we do here, though, is is we've arranged an environment that is not original. It is original in one way. It's indoors. It's in Kansas City. You know, and we've improved upon, you know, the great environments around the world that have developed the best players. But, you know, it's not original in concept. What we've done is we've reproduced street soccer, you know, wall ball where people kick the ball, you know, thousands of times against the wall while they're growing up, which incidentally every great player did. Every great player had a wall and kicked the ball against the wall. And I can write a personal guarantee. I will pay you millions of dollars if you have a player that has never used a wall that makes it to the highest level of soccer. You know, I'll, you know I'll, take me up on that. If you have trained your whole life on one of these big soulless outdoor soccer complexes where you're hitting a shot and it misses the goal and it rolls 60 yards and you get one shot every minute because you're retrieving a ball either out of the goal or from 70 yards behind the goal, you know, if you develop that, you know, out of that environment, into being a top world-class player, you're, you're, I'll give you the, you're, everything I own that I'm capable of giving you. It's never happened and it never will happen. And what we've done here in Kansas City, you know, which is why the guy that engineered the Leicester City soccer miracle came and visited us, if, you know, that's what we do, is we do everything differently. You know, it's soccer outside the box. We think differently, we've created an environment that's different, but it develops great players. Right now we have three kids, Tyler Freeman, Zion Long, Amelia Horton on national teams. You know, these kids are 17, 18, 19 years of age, you know, and the reason is they grew up playing 
you know, in an environment that was tight and it was fast and it was demanding, you know, and they were able to leverage that into later success at a higher level. And we in the club think they left us too early and they would have been better players if they'd stayed with us and really refined those skills, you know, to a professional level before they left us, right? Yeah. You know, so, so you know, this isn't just a theory. We've been doing this since 1989, since I started the club. You know, and we're getting better and better and better because if we stay open-minded and we continue to look you know, at tweaking things, we can only get better, and that's what we've done. Philippe, do you have something you wanted to add? No, I mean, when he brought the, the part about the wall and the shooting in a big complex and you know, having to retrieve the ball, I always remember when I was young, obviously kicking the ball in the house in the wall and my mom going crazy at me because I was breaking stuff, you know, and getting the wall dirty and all that kind of stuff. Uh, when we would go to the park where my parents would hang out with their friends and stuff like that, you know, I would go to the outdoor field. There was a goal there, but then I would shoot. And whether I scored or didn't score, you know, I would have to go to the goal or behind the goal to get the ball. Did I work on shooting when I went to the park? No, because it was boring was boring i hated retrieving balls so again he when he talks about walls it's vital it's super super important it's fun the kids get instant reward they shoot the ball the ball comes back to them and they get more repetition versus you shoot the ball and you have to retrieve you're going to kill the kids willingness to shoot in that time that they could be practicing what happens in a game they're not going to be as conditioned to shoot the ball you know, because they're not used to it. And speaking of walls, if, if you are new to the pod and you haven't listened to the episode we did on Ashington, England, I'm not sure what episode it was, but it's titled Ashington, England. Go back and listen to it, specifically m- referencing Bobby Charlton earlier. Uh, in this episode, um, Ashington, England is a story like no other that I think highlights the impact that both environment and walls have on a player uh, better than I think any story could. So um, go back and find that podcast. And, and that's going to be covered in much greater depth in my third book. But, you know, if it's like the other two books, you know, it's going to take me at least a decade to finish it. You know? <laughs> and we're hof- well, hopefully Andy has a decade left. <laughs> yeah, that's I hope more than that. <laughs> if I live to the same age as my dad, I've got seven years. So, um, but the, uh, the, the one thing I wanted to, to, to highlight is, uh, and, and if you go on YouTube and you look up, uh, um, you know, type in here's to the crazy ones. Um, the people that think they can change the world. And what I find is that we are too quick to circle the wagons against our previous, around our previous philosophies. Instead of being open-minded, you know, it, we have to realize that, you know, it's, it's like the Steve Jobs of this world are the people that change the world. They come up with different concepts, different ways of looking at the world, you know, and in the long run, you know, like Albert Einstein, who was vilified when he came up with the theory of relativity, you know, they, they prove that, you know, they, they had something different and special. And, you know, at this point in time, we feel very strongly that what we've done is significantly proven if you look at our alumni list, if you look at what we've done out of little old Kansas City and the success we've had at getting players to the next level, it, it's significantly proven at this point in time. And, um, and, and moving on from, from here's to the crazy ones, the people who can think they can change the world, 
Um, there's a fun um, example that, uh, that was provided one time by a lecturer in college, and, and he brought a mayonnaise jar into his, his lecture, you know, and, and uh, he proceeded to pull a bag out that was hidden from under his desk, and he filled the mayonnaise jar with golf balls and jiggled them around and worked them in and pushed them down and, until no more golf balls would fit in the jar. You know, and then he closed the lid and he said, would you agree this jar is full to his students? And the students said, yeah, of course. You know, they just saw him wrestling with getting those golf balls in. And he said, ah, hold on a second. He pulls out another bag with little pebbles in it. You know, and he starts tipping the pebbles in around the golf balls. You know, and he, he messes around with it and shakes it and, you know, and, and just fills it as much as possible full of little pebbles. And he said, okay, guys, now would you agree that this is full? And they're, yeah, yeah, of course it is. You know, absolutely. It's full. You know, and then he pulls out a bag of sand. <laughs> and he, he tips the sand in, messes around with it. Now it's packed, you know. And, and Okay, guys, you, would you agree this is full? Absolutely. You know. Water. And then he pulls out two cups of coffee. <laughs> and, and there's a, there's a, you know, stay with me, because there's, there's a reason for the coffee. You know, and and uh, he pours the coffee in. And he says, would you agree that this is full? <laughs> if I this point, everybody's course, like, no, it's not. <laughs> well, if they didn't get that point by then, they'll never get is it. Is this Houdini? <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was kind of where the demo ended. You know, and, and then but the next stage of this is brilliant, because, you know, it, the, he said, what do these stand for? You know, like the golf balls, he said, are the big things in life. They stand for your philosophy, your family, your children, your health. You know, and, and, and uh, you know, I thought that was a great analogy. You know, you know Stephen Coveyism, first things first. You know, and, and, and then he said, what are the pebbles for? He said, you know, those are your house, they're your job, they're your car. You know, they're things that you need in order to facilitate the important stuff. But they're not the be-all and end-all of life. You know, that's somebody that's house-proud, that, you know, that spends hours and hours on their lawn. I'm sorry they're missing the plot. You know, because in that time they're spending on their lawn, they could be doing family. They could be doing children. They could be doing health. You know, they could be out running marathons, training their body to live longer. You know, so, you know, it's, it's don't sweat the small stuff, right? You know, and they said the sand is the small stuff. You know, that's the keeping the house spotless. You know, well, you know, go out and do something with your kids instead of dusting. You know, you know let's let's focus on what really counts. You know, and, and I love the last one. You know, what's the significance of the coffee, sir? You know, you've always got to find time for a coffee with the people you love and your friends. You know, and, and that's the human part of what we do. You know, and, and we miss the, you know, the wood for the trees. All we can see is the forest. We, we don't see what really makes the forest up in life. And what we have to do is drill down deeper and realize that you know, we've got to train these kids to be artists. You know, I, I've got five daughters by my first wife and three kids by my second wife. They're all different. You know, I have a tattoo artist. You know, you know, and I taught my kids, do it what, it what it is that you love. You know, and I caught her at three in the morning drawing, making jewelry. You know, she loved art. She loved to create with her hands. She has a vision that is, is beautiful, you know, of the things that she can create. And she does unbelievable tattoo work, 
you know, because she's got such incredible detail. Because as a kid, she spent hours practicing her line for drawing. You know, so she just does things from an artistic perspective that blows my mind. You know, my oldest daughter, her and her husband own the biggest jousting company in the world, Noble Cause Productions. They put on jousts at Renaissance festivals. You know, he's Sir William, he's the knight, totally out of the box. She owns unicorn hugs. She's got six white ponies, and she takes them into hospitals to give kids that are dying of cancer a chance to experience the euphoria of a fantasy come true before they die. You know, and so, you know, and all my kids are out of the box. All my kids are doing things. I've got another one who's a vegan activist who currently lives in Egypt. You know, and I won't even go into that, but she's doing things that frighten the heck out of me, you know, in, in, in you know, support of a vegan activism. And huge respect, but I don't need the heart attack on a weekly basis, you know, of seeing her doing of act activism and knowing that she's in a society that might not take kindly to it, you know. And, and so, you know, and, but what we've got to do is we've got to get out of our box and realize that two-footedness is not the way to go. Because you're denying genius. You're denying the margin of greatness if you focus on diluting incredible one-footedness. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I, I can't think of a better way to kind of cap this from that perspective. Um, genius uh, is there within every player that we coach. Uh, we've got to create an environment, create a culture uh, that can help uh, them achieve that genius and then get out of the way. And I think oftentimes as coaches, we, we try to we try to micromanage entirely too much um, to create the let functional the, Let player. them express themselves. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. Well, good. Well, guys, it was fun to be back on the recording trail. Uh, now let's see if we can keep this up every, every couple of weeks um, and put out another episode. Um, and for those of you guys that are listening, thank you, uh, first off. And secondly, find us on socials. Um, we're on, I don't know, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. I'm too old for Snapchat. Um, and uh, if you have any questions, I've had several people reach out to us lately asking questions about the Maestro series or the 1v1 environment that we create. Please reach out. All of us, our emails are pretty easily accessible um, online. Send us an email. We'd be happy to help you out with anything that we can. With that said, um, we will see everybody next time. All right. Thanks, guys. See you. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. Thank you.